Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Scott, always great to be on Synaxis. I want to tell you there's no length you will not go for the show because you are is 9.42 p.m. on a Monday night, and you agreed to come on the show, uh, you know, after a vestry meeting. You guys, you're, you're weighing heavy matters, I'm sure, in Michigan in the midwinter, in the bleak midwinter, and yet you are here. Ready. I'm ready, man. To talk I'm, I'm ready. about the I, Bible and the gospel and, the, and preaching the lectionary. Text. It finally got cold here. Um, but yeah, we had, we had a good meeting tonight. So ready to rock. So here we the first uh, text we have is Isaiah 9, mm. 1 through 4. And there there's this, it's great. The first thing, first verse here talks about there, there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. It starts with the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is all the way in the north, right? These are the people uh, way out, you know, f- far out from J- Jerusalem. And then this more, you know, for those who are, who are a little more familiar with the Old Testament, then the stuff will click in with the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on light on, on them light has shined. But so this is an interesting text here because we have people... It seems like uh, we have the people who are good, who are now who are having good news announced to them, or the people who were kind of conquered first, right? Yeah, <laughs> in yeah. Israel's history, yeah. The, the far edges where the, the Assyrians pagans kind of came in and really leveled them first. These are the first people the the words of healing, hope, and light are coming to. Yeah, it's a the the promise is um, in the midst of uh, destruction. In the midst of of uh, warfare, in the midst of captivity, um, in the midst of separation of families, um, in the midst of the death of loved ones, in the midst of the loss of property, and um, in the midst of uh, yeah, just uh, life um, in the world, uh, this promise is delivered in the midst of of suffering. Yeah, it's it's interesting here because uh, and it does connect with our text in in Matthew, which we'll talk about later. But sure does. Uh, there's a there's a in the lectionary commentary from Erdman's uh, one of the commentators on this text, Andrew Bartlett, has this great. Uh, yeah, I'll just quote him. Yeah. he says it may well be that the threefold citation of ge- geographical regions at the end of the verse is a reference to the territories already lost to Assyria at the time of the Syro-Ephraimite War. The point is not simply that light would follow darkness, but especially that light would come first to those who know the deepest darkness, and that the first to fall in gloom will be the first to rise in glory. I love that line, the first to fall in gloom or the first to rise in glory. 
This observation is certainly not lost to Matthew in noting where Jesus begins his ministry. And I think that's interesting because I feel like so often when people come to worship, they think that if they're the last to fall in gloom, they'll be the first to rise in glory, right? It's almost like if I look like the most together, right? If I look like I'm the one that's forgiven least, I'll be loved the most, right? So we try to put our religious you know, wake up on it. Hey, I'm blessed. I'm doing great. You know, I'm great. Everything. This is interesting because inevitably everybody meets the gloom, right? And it's the gloom that's, that's connected to the glory. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people, um, aren't familiar with, uh, well, I, I think they're more familiar now than they were when she was living, but, uh, with someone like, um, you know, mother Teresa, who you know worked in in the, the the places of the most abject poverty and human suffering, um, facing you know the grinding uh, uh, darkness of famine and the grinding darkness of poverty, and then you know she go in her prayer closet and and uh, and really you know suffer this her own sense or the absence of God or where is God in the midst of all that's going on here. Uh, it, it may be hard in the midst of suffering, uh, and darkness and war and all these things we were talking about, um, to trust, uh, that in fact deliverance is on the way. Um, but, but that's the promise. And, and it's to those who, um, are suffering that God's promise of joy and harvest and uh the you know the 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 breaking of the bars the the oppression that's happening um is being made and you look at like you just go back in the history of you know um our, our own country and um the only people that came to this country that um you know, or immigrants that, um, that, that came here, they were forcibly brought here and made slaves. They're the ones in the midst of this backbreaking toil and this captivity being taken from their homeland and taken to a completely different place and then made to labor, made to be the people who, you know, uh, the economy of this country was built on. Um, and they're the ones that got this great revelation of the fact that God is still with them, that he's coming to deliver them, that he's going to turn their sorrow into joy. He's going to turn their their day, their night into day. He's going to defend them, and he's going to break uh, this oppression that they're under. And they sang songs about it, and they preached about it, and they they uh, um, and they they trusted it. And uh, of course, it came to pass. Um, so there is something, you know, I was raised in this, you know, tradition, uh, where, you know, this, you know, signs of poverty or signs of affliction or signs of disease or signs of oppression were signs that, you know, that, that you either weren't living right or that you didn't have enough faith. Um, and I, I think a, a prophecy like this and, and the experience of, of someone like Teresa and the experience of, of African slaves in this country demonstrates that, in fact, God does have the last word. Um, and, and th- those who, who suffer much are also going to be, um, are, you know, their joy and their deliverance is going to be even more so. Yeah. I think this great quote by Jonathan Edwards that grace is but glory begun and glory is but 
grace perfected. And, and, and this, you know, this beautiful thing that like, that we are, high, you know, it, it, not that like anybody needs to seek out uh, a, a oppression or suffering because it, it will find you. <laughs> Affliction will find you in this life, right? You don't need to oh, be like, no. oh my gosh. You don't need to self-sabotage. Exactly. But there is something because we all do, we're, we are the most close to God most often when we're aware of our own finitude, our own fragility, our own struggles. And, and, and also, we I don't think, like to be there, but yeah. Yeah. And also, I think when things are good, it's, 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 it's good to probably remember how fragile, fallen, and faltering we are, right? Because it's when things are good, we often forget, uh, you know, the, the times when we need grace the most. And, and that's, and I think in that kind of forgetfulness is when we forget our suffering neighbor and we forget how Christ neighbored us. China, we can only lose, and our love become a funeral pyre. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. On to 1 Corinthians, we have uh, our next text, which is a wonderful text here about unity here. This is, uh, you know, Paul is saying, he's speaking, he's talking about unity in the midst of a church that really seems to be struggling with it. People are saying, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos or to Cephas, or, you know, I, uh, or I love it, I belong to Christ. I like that some people are like, Paul, I'll just still take Christ. <laughs> At least there's a party that's like, I'll take Christ. But uh, you know, and then he says, "Was what, has Christ been divided, um, or were you baptized in the name of Paul?" And I love. He says, "I thank God I've only baptized two of you." You know that. You know, <laughs> this is so. This is so great. And then it concludes with you know, but the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of of God. I it, it's kind of. I mean, and I don't want to get you know uh, um, lost in the weeds with this, but it is interesting to me. That he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. So he does seem to be making a contrast between the, the, you know, the words at the ascension to the disciples, you know, go into all nations and baptize, um, teaching them to do all that I've commanded you is, um, you know, he's a preacher and not a baptizer. Um, and, uh, so that's interesting to me. It's also so prophetic. This moment in the letter to the Corinthian church of really the whole history of Christian faith. You know, um, oh, he's Bardian. Uh, oh, he's Winglian. Um, oh, he's Thomist. Yep. Um, oh, he's Lutheran. Um, and, uh, so always men for some reason. And, and, um, and, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, you, I guess we'd have to think about like, uh, you know, do we, we, uh, we have any, uh, Hildebergians or whatever. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, yeah, it's, there's, uh, you know, um, it's such a temptation to take, um, what someone has been gifted with some aspect of the revelation of who Christ is. And they're a teacher to us, and maybe we love them, maybe we have a personal relationship with them. Maybe we just have a personal relationship through reading what they wrote 500 years ago or 1,400 years ago. Um, I love Torrance's description. He says, I'm an Athanasian, you know. Um, that's probably me, you know, if I, if I were going to, if I had to weigh in and say, you know, what am I? 
But Paul's really, really clear, like, I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? No, no, he hasn't. And so was, you know, was, was Luther crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of, of uh, Thomas Aquinas? You know, um, and, and I think that's what we really need to do is like, cause it would, you know, who knows who Apollos or, you know, um, no, Christmas or Gaius in particular, you know, who are these people? But, you know, uh, were you baptized, um, you know, into, uh, Bart? No. Um, you're baptized into Christ. Uh, so. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's spoken so well. And some of it, I guess what the word here is probably like for those who are theological types and preaching types to like hold, you know, hold your heroes loosely and remember how broken they are like, like you are. And then yep. look at your friends, heroes generously. As you, yeah. you know, brothers, yeah. look at them generously. You know, like you know, like if we could, I mean, it, you know, the whole Simon Eustace at Picador, you know, like we're the the sinner and saint stuff, the dividing line that runs through the middle of all our hearts and souls is true about our heroes and about the heroes of those whose particular way of of preaching and bearing witness, like you know it drives us a little crazy. <laughs> like, that's it's true for all of us. I, 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 uh, when I was in middle school, I used to read a lot of Schaefer. I, it was kind of an odd thing for a charismatic kid to be doing, but I, I read a lot of, a lot of him and, you know, he, he's one of these guys that writes very much in opposition to personalities. You know? And I, I remember when I got into college in that moment that I realized, um, you know, man, you know, Schaefer, Schaefer didn't really like Barth very much. But man, Bart is really good, you know. Yeah, and um, and so the kind of misjudgments that 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 you know we get by osmosis, by uh, catechesis, by by our family and friends, by the churches that we're raised in, that like put certain people in one category. And until you've really had, how is this person revealing Jesus? And you know, a lot of times the, it's the people that we or taught don't have much to help us in seeing Jesus that really do have incredible insights into the person of, of Christ. And it seems to be just part of the mystery of it all. Um, where if you can't find the place where Tillich is actually, um, speaking the gospel and he, there are parts of Tillich where he is, um, you know, you haven't understood um the you know the mystery of the cross that so we're all incorporated into the death and resurrection of Jesus and we all have something to say but Christ is first and Christ is central and Christ is preeminent. It's interesting that you say Tillich because the older I get the more I, I don't read a ton of Tillich but the more Tillich I read. So this is uh from Peter Lightheart's uh, intro to First Kings. Always polemical Peter Lightheart yeah. also ecumenical at the same time. Um he's one of the great he, it's in yeah, he he. It's interesting. He frames First and Second Kings in his Brazos commentary as a as a book about the gospel and ecclesiology. And he says the ecclesiology of one two kings is thus profoundly evangelical, and Israel's history history of division becomes a figure of sola gratia, grace alone. Imitating the zeal of Josiah, Christians in a divided church must make every effort to reunite. 
But 1-2 Kings makes it clear that our hope for union does not lie in human effort to unify. Ultimately, no matter how diligent and faithful the church's efforts are, only the Lord can tie together Rome with Wittenberg and Geneva, not to mention Constantinople and Moscow. Hope for the reunion of the church is thus the same as the hope of the gospel. Hope for a future single body lies with the God who has committed himself by oath to bless all nations in Abraham's seed, who has promised to gather from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people to form a body where there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, and surely neither Presbyterian nor Methodist, neither Protestant nor Catholic. The hope for union for a divided church is in a God who always calls Israel back from exile, who always raises the dead. Which, of course, is the great crescendo of First Corinthians. The resurrection is the only hope for a divided and broken church. Yeah, and then, you know, you, you mourn for these people who are raised in you know parochial settings, um, or you know, sort of even in cultural settings where you know they're you know they're told to distrust someone like Martin Luther King Jr. and and then you know you want to show them and you know you want them to have an encounter with this giant. You know, um, and, uh, and, and, and to show them that there's often in the places where, uh, we've been told to distrust, um, there's great beauty, great, um, you know, great, like wisdom that comes from sacrifice and, um, wisdom that comes from hardship and, uh, you know, f- fabulous. And, and, uh, we want to, we want to be able to draw on everything that we possibly can. Um, and I think when we, when we recognize that the gospel, um, and, you know, is centered in a cross in which God himself, um, uh, suffers with us in human flesh, uh, we're a little less, when we keep him, when we keep the cross and we keep the Christ in the center, we're a little less, you know, you know, liable to say, oh, he's a Thomist or, oh, he's Augustinian or, oh, you know, um, he's Mennonite and, and therefore, um, you know, uh, not deserving of my attention. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a priest. I'm not a wise man who's come from the East. I wouldn't tell you what's right or what's wrong. I'm just a singer of songs. On to Matthew 4, verses 12 through 23, when here, it's so interesting, after Jesus hears that John is arrested, he goes to Galilee, he goes to the place where I say nine references, like the, you know, the place on the outskirts where Isaiah is talking about the people, these are the people that will see the great light, and he is that light, and he starts to proclaim repentance for the kingdom of, of heaven is near. And then later we have the calling of the disciples, you know, some of the first disciples, the fishermen, um, Peter and Andrew, James and John. It's interesting. And then, and then after the preaching and healing throughout the rest of, of Galilee, it's a very interesting, you know, it's a, there's a lot packed in there in these, in these, you know, um, 11 verses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, you know, these folks that's, you know, struggle with, um, um, archetypical, you know, uh, you know, um, typological interpretation of the text. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always, su- su- those people should not listen. It's, to this I'm pod. so surprised that 
that they don't see that that's exactly what, I mean, this is, of course, you know, the first gospel in the New Testament, um, canon, you know, the way we, we, we structure the Bible and almost the very beginning of, of, of Matthew. And here he's very, he's very simply saying, uh, that this passage in Isaiah is speaking of Jesus, that he is a great light, um, that is shown in the darkness. It's light has dawned. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's not, this isn't something that comes around in the second century or the third century or the fourth century and, and where people got away from, you know, uh, teaching or preaching like they should or reading, you know, uh, they started reading the Old Testament in ways that nobody had before. It, it's just totally surprising to me. Um, because it's right here in, in the gospels. It's, it's all over Paul and, uh, it's the most life giving way to read. Um, the Old Testament is to read it every, as Luther said, every page of it, you're going to find Christ. Um, so. It's interesting too, because not only do you have this tie into Isaiah nine, but also in, in, I think first Corinthians, because, you know, Jesus takes on this message of John, like repent for the kingdom of God is near. That's John's message. It's int- yeah. And you know, this commentator is like an F. Dean Leuking. Uh, he was. He has this to say. It's. I think it's. It. It's. It. Bring it. It ties it perfectly into first. Bring it. From time immemorial, God's people had prayed that His rule might come on earth as in heaven. That the enemies of God and the haters of God's people might be cast down once and for all. That the new age might dawn speedily and soon in our time and our day. Jesus announces that the time is at hand. But how near is it? And when does Nero become actually here at his birth, his baptism, his arrival onto the scene in Galilee, when tempted, when crucified, when raised from the grave? Nothing is gained by isolating one of these and declaring it alone as the moment of the dawning of the kingdom. The kingdom comes in and through Jesus, in and through his birth and ministry, his death and resurrection. It comes in the undivided wholeness of his life. It comes in the power of God, which is always accompanied by the mystery of God's timing and the sure intentions of his grace. And I think this kind of goes along with it, just like the divisions of the church. It's the division of Jesus. Well, we're sort of, you know, uh, you know, we're uh, penal substitution or we're Christus Victor or we're Ascension people or we're this or we're that. You know, we don't just do it with the church. We do it even with Jesus, you know, and it's, you know. We're wholly uh, shipwrecked unless we have the whole Christ, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. The the calling um, of the disciples and this idea that they're going to fish for people, um, I love that. I mean, I, I don't know if it's because I, you know, Sunday school and, you know, um, you know, the little sing song you know, things they taught us about it and about fishermen's and nets and everything else like that. And, you know, it's our job to go out and catch people. Um, you know, there, there's something about, um, you know, it's obvious that Jesus doesn't want them to capture people, um, to devour them. He's not interested in them cat, the cat, cap, you know, um, catching people in order to, uh, make them slaves. He's not interested in in capturing them so that that they can lord uh, over them or put them in a 
put them in a little uh, society or culture where they're in charge. He 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 wants us to um, go out and fish for souls and fish for human beings in order to bring them into his story, which sets them free from um, all that they've been swimming in before. Um, and, and makes it possible for them, uh, to really, truly become human themselves, um, by following, uh, the human who's God, um, and by dying for the world that God loves. Um, so it's, it's just, you know, I, I love the simplicity sometimes of Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, in saying to these people who are fishermen, uh, now you're going to do, now you're going to fish for human beings. Yeah. It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's interesting too, because you, you, you look at in the old Testament, like when Israel was facing its Gentile enemies, it's like, you know, they, Egypt is, is, you know, they pass through the sea and Egypt's destroyed, you know, by the, their, their oppressors are destroyed by the closing of the seas. And, you know, after, they cross the river, the Jordan, and you know the 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 creatures of the sea are likened to the nations and the kings. And also, it's funny, you know, you never see in the first testaments cultic instructions. You never see people bringing fish to the altar, right? Because the clean animals are the ones that can be domesticated, right? And the the animals that are like the pagans, right? They're the ones that you can't bring into a flock. Like you can't bring fish into a flock. Humans can't domesticate and tame them. So it's interesting that, he, you know, that Jesus chooses fishermen, people that are dealing with an, uncle, with an animal that's not, can never be ritually brought to the altar. And they're not even great fishermen. They're mending their nets. You know? <laughs> and, and it's also interesting too, because it's contrary to tradition, right? Usually rabbis go seek out their disciple. Or disciples, disciples are looking go seek for the out rabbi. the rabbi. Yeah. The rabbi doesn't. So he chooses his disciples, unlike most rabbis, and he chooses fishermen, you know, who ride the sea. Incredible. And the sea is the is the place of chaos. It's the place of alienation, Israel's story. And, and the things that dwell there are things that, you know, an, an Israelite would cringe at. And he says, no, no, no. You're going to fish for the for the fish of people. And, 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 and it's going to be fantastic. And the sea uh, and, you know, and fish and fishing stays at the center of the story. From, I mean, it's a story. It's a story about uh, a fisherman, you know, the fisherman. Yeah, you know, and even his resurrection. He's like, "Do you have a fish?" Yeah, it's incredible. It's 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 I mean, you know, I think sometimes we just we miss the simplicity of the the story. Like even how you caught this this little detail about the fact that they were mending um, their nets, and because. Uh, we, I, I, I don't know. We're looking for the big idea, or we're looking for, um, you know, uh, something that brings together everything, and everybody can be in awe of our, you know, synthetic, synthetic prowess. But it's, it's, it's a lot of times these little details, you know. Um, even that they left the boat and their father, which I think they, that as a, as Americans, we just have no understanding of how radical that was to leave their vocation behind, to leave the means of, of um, their, their whole livelihood and their father, which, you know, I mean, in our so, you know, disintegrated and, and disassociating world in which 
we're not really human beings until we've, you know, left the orbit of our parents or whatever. Um, you know, we don't, we don't understand what this was, how radical this was for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, I hope that as you are preaching this week, my friend, and our listeners are preaching and assembled around word and sacrament that, uh, yeah, that God is fishing with and through them. Amen. Blessings, Love my you. friend. Bye. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ken for being on the podcast, and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.